This episode of Table Talk is sponsored by J Food O, dedicated to sharing the best Japan has to offer. Over the next few months, J Food O and a selection of London restaurants will create seafood and sake pairings for spectator listeners to help develop your knowledge and enjoyment of the drink. The pairing will focus on the concept of umami, which in Japanese means the essence of deliciousness. Hello, and welcome to Table Talk, the Spectator's food and drink podcast. I'm Lara Prendergast. And I'm Olivia Potts. And today we're delighted to be joined by Russell Norman. Russell is an award-winning restaurateur, writer and broadcaster, and the founder of the Polpo Restaurant Group. Last year, he launched Trattoria Bruto, which saw him return to the London restaurant scene. Russell, welcome to Table Talk. Thank you. Glad to be here. Russell, we're going to start where we always do, at the beginning, and ask you... What are your earliest memories of food? Well, like many people of my generation, I suppose, my earliest memories are in the, the kitchen of my grandmother in Forest Gate in East London making chocolate cornflake cakes <laughs> in the late 70s, early 80s. So I, I would have been sort of, you know, preteen and um, not particularly interested in food, but, you know, delighted to be able to make something that was edible with my grandmother. But they were always very basic and usually involved lots of sugar. Yeah, th- those, I guess, were my earliest memories. You know, I grew up in a large family in Hounslow, in West London. I had five brothers. I was one of six boys. And so mealtimes were very regimented with my mother. We had a, we had a sort of almost a military roster of meals every week monday would always be i don't know sausage pie tuesday would always be spag bol and then through the week we would have you know whatever meal it was on whatever particular day it was and my brothers and i always used to look forward very much to saturday because saturday was egg and chips so a couple of fried eggs and homemade chips i mean you know I, i ate very well i was interested in food i finished everything but in terms of making food I grew up, as I say, with with a large family, and one of the rules in my household was that none of us boys were allowed into the kitchen. I'm pretty sure my stepfather thought we were going to contaminate the cheese if we went into the fridge or something like that. So we weren't we weren't permitted in the kitchen, which was probably, you know, in retrospect, a very sensible thing to have insisted on. So on those occasions when I would spend with my brothers a month or two or with my grandmother over the summer holidays, that was the that was the only opportunity I really got to go into the kitchen and get my hands dirty, literally, but making very simple dishes like chocolate cornflake cakes or scones <laughs> so it was, it was usually baking it was it was never anything savory but um yeah I, I enjoyed it thoroughly and you know enjoyed eating thoroughly but it was only much much later you know in my late 20s early 30s that I became interested in food professionally and what about school food do you have happy memories yeah school food was always sort of great slash borderline terrible but but even even the borderline terrible I used to like you know, we had spam fritters and, you know, sort of indistinguishable sponges that were always served with pink custard. So it was it was comfort food and very basic and absolutely of its time. But I had no complaints at all. You know, I, I would eat anything that was put in front of me, including, you know, the sort of the joke that everybody loves to repeat about school dinners being terrible. They weren't terrible. They were great, but in, you know, in a terrible way, but but still very enjoyable and edible. 
And as a family, when you were young, did you travel much? Did you go on holiday together? We always had a summer holiday, yeah, and it would always be somewhere a bit bucket and spade and touristy, I suppose. So many of our summer family holidays were in places like uh, Mallorca, and we would stay in hotels that had inclusive deals and, you know, paella nights and, and stuff like that. So, um, yeah, just, just wonderful, very simple working-class family holidays which I used to love and it was at university that you met the co-founder of Polpo Richard Beatty at university were you both interested in food or did that come later no definitely came later I was actually I was interested in food at university well it was it was a polytechnic in the 80s Sunderland Polytechnic it became a university later when all of the polytechnics were sort of reassigned university status so it certainly wasn't a you know a seat of of high learning (laughs) and I think I did as little work as I possibly could and spent a lot of time partying and enjoying myself but I used to go even you know even as a even as a sort of unsophisticated English graduate I used to go to Jackie White's market in central Sunderland at around four o'clock when all of the vegetables and meats would be discounted and so with my meager student grant I would buy bargain cuts of meat or you know half a kilo of mints and a bucket of vegetables and and without really knowing what I was doing I would go home and just you know make one pot dishes and I, I remember thoroughly enjoying the process and peeling the carrots my landlady at the time bought me for Christmas one year, she bought me the um, Mrs. Beaton's book of household management or whatever it was called, which is a massive compendium of classic British cooking, shepherd's pie, cottage pie, Lancaster, uh, Lancashire hot pot, etc, etc. And so I, I would turn the pages of, of that book and see what ingredients I needed and, and try to make recipes, which usually turned out quite well. And I think, you know, I, I lived with two flatmates in a beautiful mid-Victorian, huge mid-Victorian end of terrace house in Ashbrook in Sunderland. And I would make these sort of one-pot dishes. And, and I remember my flatmates always being very happy to, to share the creations. So, yeah, food was definitely part of my life then, but certainly not professionally. And what was eating out like in the northeast at that time? Uh, kebabs at two in the morning. <laughs> Through choice or necessity? Yeah, I think, you know, you sort of got to the end of an evening and thought, gee, I haven't eaten. <laughs> I'm hungry. So, yeah, you know, a portion of cheesy chips. And if I was feeling particularly flush, you know, I'd pay the extra 20p for the curry sauce. So it wasn't it wasn't sophisticated. And I'm not ashamed to admit that at all. <laughs> there was one restaurant, actually, that we occasionally would go to. I forget its name. Uh, it was near a roundabout. And that seemed like the height of sophistication. You know, going to a restaurant and ordering food from a menu and having it brought to the table. I, I can't remember anything I ate there. I do remember that their coffee was terrible. It was made with chicory. But um, apart from that, yeah, it was a very, a very basic philosophy in terms of eating out. Towards the end of my time at Sunderland Polytechnic, I discovered a restaurant called Elizabeth's near the bridge, which crossed the River Weir. And Elizabeth's was an old school sort of tea room slash dinner room for want of a better expression not quite a greasy spoon not quite a restaurant but somewhere in between and somewhere that you would probably expect to have found in most corners of the provinces in the UK in the 60s and 70s and so even though I was at Sunderland Polytechnic in the late 80s you know I was aware that 
Elizabeth's was a retro offer and it was a retro restaurant. All the waitresses were in their 60s. They wore frilly pinnies. Everything that came to the table was on a side plate with a doily underneath it. All the vegetables were overcooked to the brink of disintegration. And, you know, the meats were sort of sliced and, and always quite grey, but it was it was a delight. I, I absolutely adored Elizabeth's. And that would be my treat, I suppose. It was a real blow to hear that it had closed down after many, many decades, just a couple of years ago. And you started your career as an English teacher. Can you tell us a bit about how you moved from that career into the world of food? There was a little bit of a overlap, I have to be honest. So I am, um, after finishing my degree at Sunderland Polytechnic, I got a job at Easington District Council in County Durham. So this was just after Thatcher had closed all the pits. And my job at Easington District Council was a, was a newly created role within the community arts department. And my job was to engage unemployed minors in community arts. So I would, I would attempt to get them interested in mural making or folk music. One of my biggest projects was a collaboration with, with a local artist called East Durham Walks and History. It was a sort of history book with, with walks through the various villages of East Durham, places like Hetton La Hole and Seam, where Byron once lived and, and had a house with one of his wives. And after a year of slogging away, trying to get ex-miners interested in, in community arts, I realised that I was on a hiding to nothing. And decided to call it quits, drove down to London. So this was probably about 1988. Stayed with my grandmother in Forest Gate. That's the same grandmother with whom I made chocolate cornflake cakes. <laughs> and every day I would get the central line into central London just to find a job. The first job I was offered was as a cocktail bartender at a, a chain of restaurants called Old Orleans in Common Garden. And I sort of accidentally fell upon hospitality, having started as a cocktail bartender there. I then took a, a very sort of long summer off in 1990 from about March to October and lived on a, an island in the Kiklades called Eos. And when I came back to the UK with my then girlfriend, we realised we were pregnant. I got a job then at Joe Allen Restaurant. And after a couple of years waiting tables at Joanne, I thought this isn't really the sort of career that a father should have. So my son, who was like two at the time, made me think about my long-term employment prospects and ambitions. And so I went back to I went back to university and got a teaching qualification and taught English and then drama and then got a job as head of drama at a school in in North London called Bentleywood High School for Girls. So yes, I was a teacher for about three and a half years, but the whole time I was teaching, I was still working at weekends part-time at Joe Allen. So the sort of food career that I had and have and the teaching career that I had overlapped. And then there came a point where there was a, a manager position available at Joe Allen. The salary for that position was far, far greater than the salary I was getting as a teacher. And so I decided to throw all my all my eggs into one basket rather than splitting them over two and left teaching and became a full-time restaurant employee. And then over the course of the next couple of years, got better and better jobs, general manager, then operations director and so on. So that was really when my, my restaurant career took off. And when did you first think I could open my own restaurant? How did that come about? So I'd always had a, a love affair with Venice 
um, from the second year of Polytechnic at Sunderland, I was I was staying in in Blois in the Loire Valley with a girlfriend, and things went slightly wrong. And my friend Richard Beatty, who I'd met at Sunderland Polytechnic, was staying in Venice with his girlfriend, and we corresponded by postcard with the occasional telephone call. And he said, look, don't go back to London. You know, things have you know, gone wrong for you in France, but you know, it's still only early August. The whole summer is ahead of you. Why don't you come? We've got a spare room. Why don't you come and stay in Venice? So I did. I, I got the train from Blois to Paris. And then I jumped on the Paris to Venice train. I didn't realize that it was the Orient Express. <laughs> And the ticket inspector said, I'm sorry, son, your, your ticket isn't valid on the Orient Express because <laughs> it's, Ori it's the Orient Express. I had an interrail ticket. And he, he sort of said, look, as long as I don't see you, you know, just keep out of my way. I didn't have a seat. You know, I spent 12 hours in a corridor smoking jetan and um, <laughs> eating, eating dry baguettes. Got to Venice and, yeah, fell in love with the city, spent the next couple of years going back whenever I could and slowly got interested in the food of the city. Not the food that you find in restaurants, but the food that you find in the backstreet uh, wine bars that locals call bakari. And yeah, when I when I was sort of ops director for Caprice Holdings, you know, clean shaven, suit tie, secretary, chauffeur driven cars, you know, all of that executive stuff. I was still thinking about my favorite scruffy places in Venice. And it was actually Richard who convinced me to to leave that job and to start my own restaurant, which I'd been thinking about for many years. And that restaurant was Polpo. And you opened it sort of just around the time of the, of the financial crash of 2008. I think it was in 2009 you opened it. Yeah, I, listen, you can't blame me for that. <laughs> I'm not blaming you for that. But was it a difficult time to open a restaurant or were there, were there sort of things that made it there easier? There were definitely some wobbles. My, so my business partner who, who funded the majority of the first Polpo, he got cold feet at one point and said, you know, is this, is this the right time? And I remember taking him out in Soho on a Monday night and I said, yeah, it is the right time. And here's why. I took him to Barafina, the very first Barafina in Soho. And so this was, you know, this was after the financial disaster of September the 25th, 2008. We were planning to open Polpo in the summer of 2009. But I remember, I think it's March 2009, I took him to Barafina on a Monday night. It was absolutely round. The queue was an hour and a half long. And I said, there's still demand for the right sort of restaurant. And he was, yeah, he was convinced by that that one outing. So we carried on, we we pushed forward, we found a site, we got a reasonably good deal, reasonable amount of rent-free. And obviously we had a very limited budget, so I couldn't afford an architect or a designer, I did it all myself. And just, yeah, just sort of held our breath and hoped that it would work. And thank goodness it did. That was September the 30th, 2009. So a year, almost to the day, after Lehman Brothers collapsed, we opened Polpo and it was it was a smash hit. What do you think about it sort of made it such a smash hit? I mean, it was such an iconic restaurant, wasn't it? Yeah, I think people still had an appetite for eating out, but they didn't want to eat out in a fancy or expensive or ostentatious way. And so Polpo gave them the permission to enjoy an evening out without breaking the bank but now without even breaking the piggy bank actually you could eat a pulper in 2009 and drink well eat well have a great time you know with music and conversation and atmosphere and still walk out with change from 25 quid ahead and i think that that really resonated with those strange post economic crisis times and pulpo was sort of based on those venetian bakery that you speak of 
tell us about bringing that sort of type of dining and Cecchetti to London because it wasn't wasn't really a thing at that point. It was it was very much breaking new ground. It was, and we spent a lot of time and effort um, trying to convince people that it wasn't tapas. You know, in fact, there was a point I think in terms of my staff training. You know, I, I remember speaking to my staff. I used to I used to brief them every day. I was there every day myself, and I would say, look, if anybody uses tapas to try to describe our food. The correct response is, I'm so sorry, sir, we don't use the T word here. <laughs> and then there would come a little sort of, you know, a little spiel about what it was that we did and the origins of Cicchetti and the origins of, you know, the sort of the Bacchary of Venice. You know, just, just for the record and, and in the spirit of openness, I cheated. <laughs> Polpo wasn't really a Baccaro. In a Baccaro in Venice, you stand. And you point at the dishes behind the counter and you have a couple or three or four cicchetti and a glass or two of wine. And then you move on to another one. So, I, you know, I realised that that wouldn't be possible in, in Soho in 2009 because there weren't any other baccarat to move on to. So I tried to create a baccarat at the front of the restaurant and then regular sort of trattoria style seating at the back. But it was such a popular restaurant that the people would fill up the seats at the back of the restaurant and then say, well, why can't we sit here at this bar and order from the same menu? And I would say, well, because this is a baccaro, you, you just stand here and point, no, 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 we want the full menu. So I was forced by popular demand really to change the front of the restaurant to operate in the same way as the back. So that's what I mean when I said I, I cheated. And the other way I cheated is that, you know, I spent a lot of time in New York and I love those, you know, those very cool neighborhood downtown restaurants and bars and also the, the restaurants and bars across the East River in Brooklyn, Williamsburg in particular. So Polpo had as much of a New York influence and vibe as it did a Venetian one. And so that, that was the other cheat. <laughs> And it, and it was such a success that it then grew and, the, and you eventually had 17 restaurants within the group at its peak. What, what was that like, seeing it kind of spin off into all these it different wasn't restaurants? A it, wasn't, it wasn't a pleasant time for me, I have, to, I have to be honest. You know, I don't come from a business development background. I come from a, a restaurant background. Interestingly, in the news quite recently, Jeremy King, when talking about the Wolseley and the troubles that that restaurant group has had with its investor, and also the, the most recent news that a restaurant tycoon looks like he might be making a bid for the Worsley and the Delaunay and um, Chris and Jeremy's other restaurants. Jeremy said in a very clean, clear and honest statement, he said the difference between a, a restaurant owner and a restaurateur is that the restaurant owner runs his or her restaurants from the boardroom and a restaurateur runs his or her restaurants from the restaurant floor. And so with an estate of, I think it was 15 Polpos, two Spuntinos, one Mishkins and one Pub or whatever it was at, the, you know, at our height, I didn't feel that I had control because you know a single restaurateur can't run those restaurants from the restaurant floor because there are just too many. So it felt, for me, it felt corporate. And you know, I, I'm not a corporate person. You know, I always wanted to create restaurant environments that were exciting and individual and when you, when you get to a you know a stage where you have 17 restaurants that's not possible in defense of my ex-business partner you know we had talked about this a lot the idea was to get investment and our exit plan was to sort of cash out at some point with those investors but the rug was pulled from under our feet christmas 2017 when our potential investors primary capital 
decided that they weren't going to do what they had promised they were going to do. And for us, the problem was that we had assumed it was all going to happen. We had made assurances to several landlords the following year that we would take on sites. And then without the investors, we weren't able to take those sites on. We, you know, we're not rich people. We didn't have a, a bottomless bucket of money. And so Polpo hit the rocks and got into trouble shortly after that. And then, of course, when COVID came along in 2020, it all sort of vanished in a puff of smoke. And so, so I left, you know, it, it was a miserable time. And I, I left the company without a penny. You know, I literally walked away after 12 years of being at the helm of the restaurant group that, you know, Polpo became. And yeah, and sort of found myself in October 2020 unemployed and thinking, what am I going to do next? I was going to say, so tell us about Trattoria Bruto, which is what you did end up doing next. So in October, when Polpo, you know, went to shit, and I walked away with nothing, I would tell anybody that would listen that I would never open another restaurant as long as I lived. Two months later, (laughs) I was on the phone to my property agent, like like a drug addict on the phone to his dealer, almost, you know, sort of almost ashamed and quietly saying so that nobody could overhear. What's on the market? Are there any interesting sites? Because <laughs> I, because I'd had an idea a couple of years before then. You know, I, I started to travel to other parts of Italy. I was obsessed with Venice for such a long time that I, I felt I was betraying my first love by going anywhere else. But I, I sort of started to go to Florence, which is another small city. Venice is tiny. You can walk from one end of Venice to the other in an hour. I think you can walk from one end of Florence to the other in forty-five minutes. It's you know, it's just, and it really appealed to me. And I loved all these family-run trattorias that have been there for decades serving very simple local dishes not even tuscan dishes you know some of the dishes were so specific to florence that you don't find them anywhere else in tuscany you know not in the urban centers like siena or pisa and certainly not in the rural locations either and i had this idea for you know for a very honest trattoria which was hyper hyper specific in terms of its locality its you know its dishes and recipes but once again as i cheated with Polpo, I also cheated with my conceptualization of Trattoria Bruto because I wanted it to have a real New York vibe. I knew I wanted it to have a bar where people could come and just have a couple of cocktails without having to eat and a dining room that was that was connected to that bar in open terms. So, you know, it's not a separate area. The bar at Bruto is slap bang in the middle of the, of the room. And I wanted it to be noisy. I wanted it to be fun. I wanted you know people to come without a booking and be able to sit straight down, or if they wanted to make a reservation, you know, be able to do that too. But in terms of in terms of the food, it really for me always had to be exceptionally authentic, and that was one of the early worries for me because authentic Tuscan and Florentine cooking is so simple. You know, quite often you'll go to a place like Sostanza in Florence or my favorite district is just south of the river Arno the Oltrano district and you find places there like Alavecchia Betola or Camillo or Sabatino and quite often you'll go there and you'll have a dish which is a single ingredient and that's that's quite a bold statement and I was worried that you know people might come to Bruto and think what I could do this at home but I stuck to my guns and I found a chef who had worked in some pretty high-end and often Michelin-starred restaurants. You know, he worked with Anthony Dimitri at the Michelin-starred Wild Honey. He worked with Nuno Mendes at Chilton Firehouse, Patrick Powell at Allegra. And so I met Ollie 
at my farm in Kent last year. I mean, just spent a day cooking. And I tried to explain to him that, you know, that the food had to be extremely simple because this is how the food is prepared and served at my favorite places in Florence. And he sort of got it straight away, which I was you know, delighted with, but also you know, quite surprised at. So I said to Ollie, look, we've got to go to Florence. All these restrictions and lockdowns are going to make it tough. Our first trip, we had to cancel because <laughs> he got COVID. <laughs> but we were able to squeeze in another trip. And we, we spent five days in Florence eating four or five times a day. And he, he absolutely nailed the menu. And we came back to the UK. And while the restaurant was being built, we tested recipes and, and tried to get things as simple as possible. And, you know, I'm absolutely you know proud and delighted that we've managed to recreate the, the simplicity and the honesty and the seasonality and the focus on ingredients that all of the restaurants I just mentioned in Florence have as a matter of course. You know, there's, there's, no, there's no way that the chefs at those restaurants would ever try to reinvent the wheel, ever try to put a twist on a classic dish, because that's not what you do. It's the, you know, it's the food of the, of the home. Good Tuscan cooking is, is trying to recreate the sort of food that your grandmother serves. And Russell, how have you found it opening a restaurant in the wake of the pandemic and, and particularly compared to what it was like opening Polpo in the wake of the financial crash? Well, how interesting that, you know, that Polpo opened in the wake of the financial crash and Bruto has opened in the wake of the pandemic. And I, I think there is a similar attitude and a similar hunger, excuse the deliberate pun, you know, for, for good times, but also for good times that aren't excessive or opulent or, or fancy. And I think that's one of the reasons that Bruto has resonated and appealed so immediately. We hit the ground running. I mean, here's another wonderful coincidence. I, I think I mentioned that I opened Polpo on the 30th of September 2009. I opened Bruto on the 30th of September 2021, completely coincidentally. But, you know, the, the stars came together for that, for that single opening date. And since the 30th of September, you know, we've not stopped. We've been you know, busier than we could ever have hoped for. And, you know, we've struggled with staff, obviously, because, you know, Brexit put paid to a lot of the wonderful transient exchange of European nationals, I suppose, across the whole, you know, of the, of the nations of Europe. So, you know, that, that has been a bit of a struggle, but we worked through it. We've all worked very hard. We've closed two days a week just to give everyone a bit of a break. But, you know, there have been occasions when some of my staff have worked 90 hours in a single week, just over five days. But, you know, it's we've persevered and it's worked. And, you know, I'm looking at the reservations book for the following, the coming week. And I think every single evening we have a waiting list of over 250, wow. fully booked every night, wow. fully booked every lunch. You know, I couldn't be happier. And I think it's a lot of that is down to the desire of the London restaurant going public to be able to go out and not just eat. It's not just about eating. For me, restaurants are about people. They're about the interaction between staff and customers. They're about having a great time with your family or friends. You know, they're about human contact. And we've been restricted and denied human contact for the best part of two years now. You know, don't forget that the pandemic started in February 2020. And here we are, February 2022. And we're, we're still living with it. And, you know, those, those two years have had a, a real psychological impact, not just on me. And I don't mind, you know, telling you that, but, but obviously, you know, on, on, the, on the population of the world, 
but specifically in terms of my business, the population of London and, and its environments. So very a very similar time, you know, pe people want to want to interact. They want that human contact. And I think Brute provides that. And outside of work and the restaurant world, what what does food look like for you? What what's comfort food for you, Russell? I'm one of those people that would be extremely happy with beans on toast or, you know, a simple supper of, you know, a, a good cut of meat served with, you know, some some really well prepared and cooked vegetables or even simpler than that. You know, if I'm in the um, farmer's market in Blackheath, where I'm living at the moment on a Sunday morning and I see some radicchio or I see a massive head of punterelli, I'll quite often just buy that, go home and prepare punterelli, for example, with, you know, with, with store covered ingredients like uh, olive oil, anchovies, garlic. So, you know, that, that's comfort food and that's the sort of food I like to eat and, and the sort of food I like to prepare. But as I, as I said, I'm, I'm equally happy with very good cheese on toast or, or baked beans from a tin. I'm not a fancy or fussy person or eater at all. And Russell, we normally like to end this podcast with a question about your desert island meal. What, what would your desert island meal be? Mm. My desert island meal, it would be, it would have to be comfort food. So it would be something like, and I would make sure that, you know, that I hadn't eaten for maybe a day. Certainly I would have to skip breakfast, but I can't imagine anything more delicious than an entire shepherd's pie with a steaming side dish of fresh vegetables, heavily, heavily salted with molden sea salt or Cornish sea flakes. And it, yeah, it's the, sort of, it's the sort of food that gets, you know, not just your taste buds and your, your appetite going, but I think, you know, comfort food and nursery food, because it is nursery food, also does something to your, you know, to your brain. So you know, there must be a, a release of endorphins or serotonin or whatever the chemicals are, I don't know. And it's that sort of food that, you know, that, that, that makes me get quite excited. You know, I'm not a chef myself. I'm a cook. I write recipe books, but I've never put on a white jacket and, and cook professionally in the kitchen. So the sort of food I like to eat is, is definitely unchefy. But, you know, there needs, to, there needs to be big flavors. There needs to be very good seasoning. And yeah, that's, that's the sort of food I like to eat. Sorry, that's my dog in the background. <laughs> I think she must have heard the word shepherd's pie. <laughs> a dog of good taste. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And to drink, I'm going to be very perverse here. Yes, of I think, course, you must have a drink. Know, no, no, I think, you know, shepherd's pie in my childhood was always was always enjoyed with a, with, a, with a strong mug of Yorkshire tea. But I think if it were, if it were a desert island, I'd, I'd really love to enjoy my shepherd's pie with them. An exceptionally dry and exceptionally cold gin Gibson with small silver skin onions and then possibly you know just a glass of very simple Italian red like a Barbera or a Dolcetta d'Alba or if you know if the budget were there perhaps a glass of Sasakaya. <laughs> I think we can stretch to that. <laughs> okay I'll take it. <laughs> Russell, thank you so much for joining Table Talk. And if you'd like to hear other episodes, you can find those on the Spectator website. Mm -hmm.